there appears to be an uptick of aggressive policing. I have been working in the community for over 20 years. And it is very obvious, particularly during this time, that we see police all the time. It is a job like any other job in the world, and they have to abide by the rules and their training. And then when not, there has to be severe consequences because it's the lives that we're dealing with. On May 13th, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the independent agency that investigates complaints against the NYPD, met to discuss the then-recent and highly publicized complaints of excessive and disparate measures officers were taking to enforce the city's social distancing rules. A week before the meeting, it was revealed that 35 of the 40 New Yorkers who had been arrested for social distancing violations were black, and that 80% of summonses were handed out to people who weren't white. We'd started working on this story a week prior, when footage of an NYPD officer slapping, dragging, tackling, and kneeling on the neck of 33-year-old Donnie Wright surfaced. And though the police commissioner insisted that the many complaints of racist policing could not be anything further from the truth, videos of Black and Hispanic residents being harassed and assaulted were in stark contrast to photos of officers handing out masks to white crowds in public parks. The piece was about the root causes of and solutions to social distancing over enforcement, and where this supposedly new problem fit into the long history of issues certain New Yorkers have always faced when dealing with the NYPD. Obviously, we're in a very unique moment socially and politically and economically and physically, but I think you have to just sort of pull back and, and look at where we are in general as far as policing in, in New York City. My name is Mark Winston Griffith. I am the executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center and also a steering committee member of Communities United for Police Reform. The idea that black and brown communities are over-policed should come as a surprise to no one. And it's certainly something that we've been fighting for a long time. And I think it, it comes from this idea that Police need to be involved on every level of public safety and public wellness. This increases the possibility that there's going to be some abuse of law enforcement that's going to result in some kind of lethal force that is demonstrated. Then, as predicted, the month ended with a show of force. The deaths of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and George Floyd, all within just over two months of each other and each at the hands of police officers, occurred as the country was still reeling from the death of Ahmaud Aubrey and the arrest of a suspect with a decades-long career in law enforcement for the crime. And while state-sanctioned violence against black human beings is, in this country, as old as the state itself, these brazen acts of racist brutality, some of which played out repeatedly in gruesome videos, took place in a country already on the brink. Over 100,000 Americans had contracted the virus, 40 million had been recently unemployed, and the federal government wasn't doing much to help. We were by and large confined to our homes and our phones or doing essential jobs in risky conditions. Summer was starting, days were longer and hotter, and for many, the rent was almost due. 
What came next was unexpected and unsurprising. A nationwide uprising in the name of black lives, spanning small towns and big cities in all 50 states. And in New York City, where almost 24,000 people had died from COVID-19 and where black people were twice as likely to, the protests that started days earlier in Minneapolis hit the streets of Brooklyn on May 29th. And, as expected, the NYPD responded with the same excessive force they'd been criticized for implementing in the weeks prior. I've heard about the protest because I have a couple of friends that live down by the Barclays Center. And when I got there, it was probably around like 9.30. They were stationed kind of in multiple tiers. And then out of nowhere, just started grabbing and arresting anyone who was in the front. My name is Michelle. I live in Brooklyn. There was a number of people who I heard were literally either crossing the street, getting groceries, wanted to get Chick-fil-A. They incidentally arrested a lieutenant's wife. She was a black woman who happened to be in the area. A man grabbed me from behind in a crowd of people. He immediately threw me to the ground and eight men descended upon each part of my body. I am completely bruised and bloodied from it. I still don't have feeling in my hands entirely. And while that was happening, I had a lieutenant screaming in my face to just take it, which for everyone who has experienced violence in any way, knows those are the worst things you can say to someone. At the point that the police are involved, there's always going to be a heightened possibility of lethal force and abuse because police on an individual and social level just have an inordinate amount of power. And it's not just because they carry a gun, but it's because the policies in New York City and really across the land are structured so that police face as little accountability as possible. When police officers engage people, there's a sense of impunity. And we've seen this recently, and we've heard about this anecdotally, the police essentially see themselves as a hammer and everything else around them as a nail, and that's just a recipe for disaster. We lived and we watched what happened in our hometown following Friday's demonstration. Peaceful protesters were pepper-sprayed, beaten with billy clubs, shoved, spat on, all by cops who for the most part weren't wearing face masks. An NYPD officer drove a city-owned vehicle into a crowd of people, an act the mayor called upsetting. Officers knelt alongside protesters and used mourning bands to cover their badge numbers, a trend inferred to forecast the abuse that they intended to inflict. On Tuesday, the mayor instituted a citywide curfew, but provided few specifics on how it would be enforced, and five days later, lifted it. Cops confiscated bikes and supplies, and trapped protesters on the Manhattan Bridge. And a Manhattan judge ruled that people who'd been arrested while marching could be detained for over 24 hours. By Friday, June 5th, thousands had been arrested, and some even questioned by the FBI. And two days prior, on Wednesday, June 3rd, crowds gathered at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Sunset Park to demand justice for Jamel Floyd, who died that morning after a corrections officer pepper sprayed him. My friend got arrested with me, and then we got taken first to a Brooklyn precinct, and then eventually wound up at one police plaza where they were taking everyone. 
my arresting officer started being very uncomfortably kind the second that we were in the wagon. He <laughs> tucked my hair behind my ears and wanted to put my mask on. Things that were a level of intimacy that was really bizarre for someone who had just attacked you. And I'm clearly bleeding at this point. I got knocked to the ground with such force that my contacts got knocked out of my eyes. Like, I, I clearly have been harmed. I'm not going to like appeal to your humanity. <laughs> I was in jail for 10 hours. My friend who got arrested with me was there for maybe three. Only white people were released in a time that would have been reasonable. And some people got out in under 30 minutes. You're not allowed to get a phone call. They don't do phone calls there were her exact words. So you just wait until they say you can go. There is no heating there. So for about like 10 hours, I was just shivering up to the point where I like made myself a toilet paper blanket. There is a lot of confusion between the cops. They didn't know who arrested me. They didn't know why I was arrested. I was never told why I was arrested. I was never read any kind of rights. I was never announced. I was never given a warning. None of them are from there. None of them seem to understand or have been trained in what to do outside of takedown. If you're going to talk about how do you lower the incidence of abusive policing, you've got to address accountability. You've got to make sure that things like 50A, which essentially hides personnel records away from the public so that police officers who have a history of abusive behavior are never brought to account in a completely transparent way. You just have to make sure that you build a culture where police officers are expected to not only perform their duties in a way that's respectful and that abides by what the rules are, but you also give civilians and the public a way to actually hold them accountable without having to equip everybody with a, a phone or even have to rely on a body camera. Civilian recording of police brutality is the primary, if not only, accountability measure available to the people. Departments routinely fail to address allegations of abuse unless presented with video evidence, and even when such evidence exists, police are rarely disciplined. Despite the video of Eric Garner's last moments being recorded and viewed innumerable times since 2014, the officer who killed him faced no criminal charges and stayed on the city's payroll for five years. The video of George Floyd's last moments, captured by Darnella Frazier on May 25th, however, resulted in the arrests of four police officers and a once-in-a-generation movement for change. Today, with these video cameras and telephones that have cameras, uh, everything winds up being videotaped, right? Everything. So the attorney general is investigating in real time. This is like, uh, you know, new age reality TV. Everything they're doing is being videotaped and is being investigated immediately. So the police officers know that they're being videotaped. The protesters know they're being videotaped. So they all know that there's going to be total accountability. It's not like the old days, you know, where you had to get a tip and a rumor and this and you had to go back. It's all on videotape. So there is no 
pretense or hiding or maybe I'll get away with something. There's no getting away with anything. It's all on videotape. And the AG is investigating and it's happening now in real time. Throughout the recent Black Lives Matter protests, conversations around solving America's policing problem have grown louder and more unified. Some of New York's most popular demands were communicated to the mayor on June 3rd in a letter signed by hundreds of his current and former staffers. The letter demands a $1 billion reduction to the NYPD operating budget and a reallocation of those funds to things like housing, rent relief, food assistance, and health care. It also calls for the immediate firing of all NYPD officers found to have used excessive force or to have covered their badges at protests, and for the names of those officers and their personnel files to be released to the public. Finally, it demands that an independent commission be appointed to investigate the mayor's office and NYPD's responses to this moment. As for 50A, the state legislature will convene with an eye towards overhauling the statute. And as for other solutions to over-policing, the one we found most overwhelmingly offered was the adoption of a more holistic approach to public safety, one in which cops and communities share the burden and where issues that extend past the reach of the law are left in the hands of community. I have a heavy heart, a tremendous amount of sadness. And I would say with that, there is still optimism and hope on the other side. This is not the first time we've seen this, right? So we've seen unrest around the death of folks at the hands of, of police officers. One of the things that will always weigh heavy on my mind is what else can we be doing? My name is Dr. Tracy Kazee. I am the Senior Vice President of Justice Initiatives for the Center of Policing Equity. My role is to work with the chiefs on issues of culture and disparities amongst all of the work that they do and provide solutions and help them figure out so we can avoid situations that we see going on across the country. It just all feels wrong. I mean, it, it truly does. What you also see happening on the streets is what I call generational exhaustion. This is not new. This has been a life lived for millions of, of Black folks. The one thing with the Chiefs, the conversations I've been having is that you certainly don't think we're gonna be able to go back to whatever we were doing prior to what you see happening now. There are communities that require a different approach. And in figuring out what that approach is, you have to do everything that you can to make sure that you are on the ground with community and understanding what those needs are. Some of those needs are not police law enforcement related, and they don't require a law enforcement response. When you talk about the lack of jobs, when you talk about schools that are not up to par with some of our suburban schools, those are not police issues, yet they intersect with policing in many ways. One of the things you're starting to hear too out of the demonstrations that you have is that there's a disconnect between the officers you know, who don't reside here, who occupy and leave. And one of the things that we're gonna to have to do is there needs to be a full accounting for community, not just law enforcement. And in some cases, that means you may have to defer those services 
to nonprofits that are on the ground, violence disruptors, people who live in the community, people who are known in the community. And that means there has to be a sharing of power in some form or fashion. One of the things that we always emphasize when it comes to policing is that society has asked the police to be responsible for too much. It's not only that the police have taken more responsibility and expanded their role, but you know, elected leaders, legislation, increasing the number of criminal offenses on the books has allowed for more and broader policing. And then on top of that, we have seen drastic shrinking of other resources that could better respond to issues that are happening in the community than law enforcement and the criminal justice system. My name is Ed Chung. I am the Vice President of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. A lot of the things that happen in a police department that are problematic aren't because of bad or good apples. The way that officers are trained, not only in official training capacities, but in kind of that unofficial learning from people who came before you. When you're seeing, you know, use of force, aggressive takedowns, um, you know, punches being thrown, especially in communities and places that have persistent levels of violence, you can't just come in with the police or with a government program and say, this is what we're going to do. You have to start from the ground up. So, for example, reducing the number of actual police stops and custodial arrests, especially in black and brown communities where you see more and over-policing, limiting the amount of calls that officers respond to in person, de-escalation and diffusing situations. I think those are the types of things that law enforcement is going to continue to consider and something that people in the community have been clamoring for for quite a while. Now we have to do everything we possibly can to make sure that people are safe. And that's what this budget is all about. Another change we heard shouted across the country is for local jurisdictions to defund the police. And though the call to defund is not entirely new, it seems louder and stronger than ever before. Perhaps because it's budget season and from here to California, Millions of dollars are being cut to pay the costs of sheltering in place. In our own city, the mayor presented a budget in April with a less than 1% cut to the NYPD and nearly 40% taken out of funds for public housing. And perhaps the public health, economic, and policing crises that have plagued the city for months now have more New Yorkers wondering what they're even paying for and asking what defunding might look like. For folks who talk about abolish or defund, in some in some instances, in some nuances, we're talking about the same thing. And I clearly recognize it's not, right? There's folks who are just advocating for police not to be there. I get that. I wish it was so easy to say, let's just, you know, pull them out. And I think we all know not everybody's going to agree with that. And so it really is, to me, it's a call. It is a given in most cities that police budgets will go up every year. From our perspective, or my perspective, um, we need to think of public safety uh, at, a, at a much larger level, not only when it comes to budgets, but when it comes to everything else, resources, framing, agenda, incorporating people uh, to do the work. The idea that we're going to see dramatic budget cuts and the police department will most likely be spared those cuts 
and then we're going to see cuts in education and social services and uh, health care. And I think it reflects the fact that the police department has always been seen as and has been treated as a sacred cow and that um, it's got a disproportionate amount of power within City Hall. Yeah, I'm not really sure either what defund the police means exactly. Um, If by defund the police you mean defund the whole thing, cut the whole $6 billion out of the budget, I don't think that that's possible. But if you mean cut the police department's budget, that is something that the council is looking to do. My name is Daniel Drum, and I'm the council member for the 25th District, and I'm also the chair of the Finance Committee of the New York City Council. Our primary responsibility is to produce the budget for the city of New York. Of course, we have to go through negotiations with the mayor, but um, I personally am pushing to definitely see cuts to the NYPD budget. It is shocking to see the level of support that the mayor has given the NYPD, both in terms of the violence that he claims he doesn't see that happen, but also in terms of support for their budget. So those negotiations are happening, and we need to come up with a budget by June 30th. I think the most obvious cuts could be the delay in the class, or even not bringing the class forward, of the cadets that are currently prepared to go on July 1st. I am also looking very carefully at their overtime. They have about a $700 million a year overtime budget, and I think that's something that we really need to look at, especially in light of what's been happening on the streets. I'm sure that a lot of these officers are accumulating overtime, so it's something that we need to examine more. They also cost us millions and millions of dollars in lawsuits. So all of these arrests, that have happened over the last week and a half or so, ultimately are going to cost the city a lot of money. We have a number of public safety initiatives included in the budget that the city council put forward. We have the end gun violence budget. We have alternatives to incarceration. So rather than using a police department to do many of the things that really aren't part of their role, we want to look at things like that and reinvest our money in programs that we know work and that actually achieve the ultimate goal, which is to reduce crime and end violence. I think that what has happened over the last week and a half has opened people's eyes again to policing and the approach to policing in the city and has made people more aware. And I think that with the defund the NYPD movement, people are seeing that the way to reform the police department is by cutting their budget. And that will send a very clear message to the officers that we're not fooling around. The story we were working on kept changing as we made it, and will change and change again if we're lucky. Yesterday, June 7th, the mayor committed to move resources from the NYPD to youth and social services. Today, June 8th, the city starts its Phase 1 reopening, with subways and stores inching back to normal. There's a rumor that NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea is considering resignation, and with him, Department Chief Terrence Monaghan, each to be replaced by a high-ranking black officer. 
Later this month, we'll vote, largely by mail, in the New York State primary election. And one week later, the city budget will be due, although it's expected to be late this year. And an unknown number of NYPD officers will likely resign or be investigated for brutality, enacted during the recent protests against police brutality. And New York will keep hitting the streets until things change, and if ever there were a time for them to, it appears to be now. And our story will change, and so will we. But the one thing that won't is that Black Lives Matter. You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to Black people and to our non-Black allies only. Each episode of our show is lurking in a different corner of life in Brooklyn, collecting stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until we get exactly what we want, we'll be pumping our fists at the intersection of stand up and fight back on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today it's June 8th, and this week, we're coming straight from the underground. First, we tried to solve the problem of policing and ended up just screaming in the middle of the street. Then, a young man opens a gate and shows us into his world. Next, we head to the Midwest and back. Then, we keep an eye on the streets, which are keeping an ear to the ground. Next, we get a closer look at pandemic life behind bars. Then, a lesson in hope and history from our elders at the water cooler. Next, we're joined in solidarity as we all fight for a world free of bias. And finally, the weather. In the meantime, tell me, what's going on in Brooklyn, USA? You know, we are all talking about what, um, what everybody is doing, but there is a matter that is going around USA that is touching everybody, heart and mind and soul. And it may not be for, it may not happen to any one of us today, but you don't know what will become tomorrow. I think everybody should put their energy into it to make it happen because the young people is doing a lot out there. They're braving the sun. They're braving the bullets, the tear gas, and tear gas. If none of y'all never had tear gas, it's not a nice thing. So we need to support um, record media. They need to voice some opinion too. Because people are going out there willing to die for justice, for equal rights and justice. For. And it's not only for me, because I'm a guy. means I could fly home back anytime. Because anything like that happened in my country, I on the streets. 
I'm a um, revolutionist and I don't want to go out there because they'll put me back in on plane. I'm a revolutionist. I was a soldier and I'm out. a revolutionist. <laughs> you so, you know, I think like those I can't stand up to see what's going on because I might hit the policeman. I hear you. And I'm not my country that I can break his hand or his foot and then get off with murder. You know what we got to ask for? We got to ask for this KKK police to get out of the black area because they're going to still be killing. They're going to still be killing because they will go on doing it. We got to demand and people could, could put up um, the, 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 the bills that they remove. The more people put up bills, the more they will get, get rid of them. They're coming from Long Island and all these places and kill not black people. And, every night, and it's a premeditated act because they said the KKK get me the police force that they will take on a black person every night. Oh, when it's quiet down, it go back to the same thing that it was, and we cannot let it quiet down. We got to keep on going. And people have to call on the police and the commissioner and the mayor. We have to get those white um, KKK people out of the black community. They're not going to stop. They're going to still do it. They don't care. So we, the people, got the power. The power lies in the hands of the people, not in the um, elected officials, not in the mayor, not in the, the governor. It lies in the hands of the, of the people. The people speaks and they answer. The people speaks and it works. So the people have to come and we got to push people out there, push our young people and brace them to the end. Hi, I'm Nigel Finley. I'm 23 years old and I'm a young black male. I am extremely into anime, comic books. I'm a film junkie, a film nerd. It's my dream to shoot my own movies and to write my own movies and, you know, go to the big screen. I am a security guard worker contracted with G4S for Cod Edison. I'm a gate worker there. So I open the gates for the employees make sure they have their right identification, the papers, and make sure they come through safe and sound. I'm also a manager, so I also have a team I need to check on hourly. And my team is just the best, you know, we all come from different parts of life. And you even have different political stance, you know, some liberal, some conservative, but that don't really change anything. We can all talk, chill, vibe, and I'm a very approachable boss. If they have questions or thoughts they want to get off their chest, they can talk to me. And it's really cool. It's really relaxed and really chill. It's a quite easy job. Thank God. I don't want it to be hard because if it gets hard, then that means something's wrong. Uh, speaking of something wrong, you know, this whole George Floyd situation, it's really hard to see that on camera. Put aside that that has been on cameras for so long, done to people who were like me, and how I personally feel about it is, it, it, it makes me sad because it, it feels like, well, what's really changing? And you have to think, this is just on camera. We, we don't know all the times that wasn't caught on camera. I mean, George Floyd's around the world that we didn't get to see and the cases that just got thrown out or just passed through or no justice was served. Personally, how I feel about it, I feel disgusted by it. And it made me mad and made me sad at the same time. It just boils my blood a little bit, <laughs> to be honest with you. I'm not the only one affected by this. This actually seeped over into the work environment. Like I said, you have a lot of people from different backgrounds and walks of life. Some liberals, some conservatives. And you best believe that a police officer killing an innocent black man, well, that's going to come up. And then you have my workers who feel strongly about it too. So as a manager, I try not to take any sides. Because I have retired cops who work at the facility, and they feel strongly about it. 
And others feel differently about that. Some feel opposite. It's clean cut for them. George Floyd was wrongfully killed. Knowing how I feel about the situation, that's hard to stay neutral about it. I'm originally from the South. I've been through police brutality. I was exposed to it at a very young age when I saw my father get slammed down in front of me and handcuffed because he looked like a suspect. I was six years old when that happened. I remember crying because I thought it was gonna take my dad away from me. And my dad, like, yo, telling me to look away, tell my mom to grab me, because they arrested my father in front of me. Thank God they caught the suspect and they relayed the message. I could have lost my father just being a black male in America and it make you mad and it make you scared because that could be you. It's just depending on the day. Staying neutral on that, that's a hard thing to do. My workplace is usually a chill place. Now it's so tense. It is really tense. You can't hide from this situation anymore. The protest is like a couple miles up the street. It's so close to my work environment. We're in an era where it's right in your face. You can't hide. You can't afford to hide on a rock. It's coming to your doorstep, to your workplace. You have to deal with this 24-7. It's really real out here. Seeing the protest starting in Minneapolis, and now it's like in every state, and even going globally. You got all kind of people coming out and just supporting us. What's wrong is wrong, and I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to fight with you. And that is the, that, to me, is the American way. This is on a whole new scale. It's probably going down as one of the biggest protests in history, period. It's amazing to see how many people are passionate about this. It went from protesting in some areas to rioting. I don't agree with the looting, but I'm not going to condemn it. People are just tired because it was too much building up. The dam broke. And now you have a waterfall of tiredness, anger, frustration, just flowing out into society. This weekend, I was walking past a riot that was happening on 14th Street. Walking through something like that, seeing the amount of passion that the protesters were giving, shouting, you know, Black Lives Matter, no more police brutality. There was fireworks going off in the air, goggles for the tear gas, butt bags, I think was carrying water and milk, all black attire, gloves too. I felt intimidated from the police, the law enforcement there because how different people see the police is uh, interesting to me. When I see a uh, law enforcement, I tense up, you know, uh, make sure I look non-threatening. It's sad, but it's, it's a trained habit I have. So when I saw that, plus the, the riot shields, the hands on their guns, they're tense. I'm tense. The protesters are tense. It's just a bad situation to be in, honestly. Seeing the police officers in the riot gear really triggered my anxiety. Kicked it up to 11 and I already was on edge. I just really wanted to get through the crowd. When I was farther up the road, I saw they start to throw the tear grass. I think they warded the gloves to pick up the tear grass cans up to throw it back at the officers or to throw it away from the crowd, which was pretty cool. I thankfully wasn't there for the tear gas and the rubber bullets. I was just there when we were just starting up. I didn't see any fire. I wasn't at a violent protest. Plus I had to go to work anyways, but I was inspired by the protesters. I appreciate what they're doing. You know, kudos to you if you're out there protesting. So after walking through that and the emotions I was already feeling about the George Floyd situation just like came back and bubbling up in me, 
I walk in through the front um, front door. It's like dead silence in the office. The process is right up the street. You can cut it with a knife how much tension was in the room. As the manager, I go do my rounds. Every booth I walk in, somebody turns to me. Hey, Mr. Finley, let me talk to you about this. A team member of mine named Beverly. She's a young girl. She's 18 years old. She's a liberal. She turned to me like, Mr. Finley, what do you make of this? Like, how do you feel about it? Again, manager, I'm trying to stay neutral, but the way I'm feeling is still in there. I want to explode. I want to go on my whole spiel, but I, I'm a manager, so I put my work face on. She's very upset about the whole George Floyd situation, him being killed on camera and the police brutality in a whole. Next booth is my uh, the armed guard. I don't want to say his name. <laughs> he said, you seen the idiot per protesters out there? Huh? You seen the idiots? I bet after this, they're going to go loot. They're probably going to bust over the target next on down street. Now, I should have had to tell you how angry that made me feel. But again, manager face. I was like, you know, maybe, you, well, you have to remember what they're protesting for. He's like, I don't care what they're protesting for. You don't destroy property. You know, you look a bunch of thugs. Again, <laughs> his opinion. <laughs> Please remember, these are Americans protesting. They're not just black or colored people. They're your fellow Americans. People are quick to criticize the protesters and just group them in with the rioters or looters as if that was everybody who were protesting. Yeah, you have some people who do go that route in looting, but let's not get twisted. There are cops who are busting up their own equipment and are looting too, you know? But since they're in the crowd, who the blame go to? We all know. They use cold words like goons, thugs. They've been using it for years. We know who they're describing. And the same people who use those cold words are at my job telling me this, like I'm not black, you know? Like I'm not a black man. Like I'm your goddamn boss. Trust and believe I have those feelings, but I have sense enough to know I should probably stay neutral because I'm your boss. They don't respect that. It happened from booth to booth. Every time I went to a booth, I get another story. Yo, Mr. Finley, that's messed up. I wish those protesters would go home. It's causing traffic. It showed you what people prioritize in society. Shouldn't be worried about traffic. You know what I'm saying? Dude, it's a protest. They, they're fighting for change. Like, I walked through it. I was okay. <laughs> it's, it's a change. Then some people, like, after I get off work, I'm joining them. I only got an hour left. I'm out of here. <laughs> it was so new to me because a workplace that was so chill, it was all on one wavelength one event can change the whole flow of my team. We are divided. I have half of my team who are for the protest. I have the other half who are just not here for it. As ironic as this is, it kind of showed me how my team members feel. And I'll just move accordingly like that, you know? And it's sad because I kind of on some level wish I didn't know this about them, but I know it's for the better that I know where they stand. Now, maybe they can't educate themselves and have a change of ways, or maybe they're not seeing the full picture. But for right now, you know, all my job right now as a boss is to try to de-escalate any upcoming arguments I can on the field. Again, this is just crazy to think that something that happened in Minneapolis just spread this wide and this fast. Seeing people from different walks of life and different ethnic backgrounds supporting us so strongly. I can't even put into words how happy and making me because instead of questioning them, I'm gonna take their word and I'm gonna stand with them. Better yet, I'm gonna fight with them. That to me is the American way. That's the only thing that gives me hope in this situation.
because regardless if you look like me or not, you can stand with me and you can fight for what's right in this country. Hi, my name is Scott Campbell, and I'm over here in Detroit. Um, with with everything going on, I think the best way to describe my current state at the moment is simultaneously energized and exhausted. Um, I've lived in Detroit for four years now, and one of the things that uh, made me fall in love with this place um, and kind of keeps me just kind of enamored with it is how close-knit and uh, kind of genuine the community is here. You know, if you if you show up for Detroit, Detroit really, really shows up for, for you, and you, you see that um, in the protests and out in the streets between how diverse and multicultural, um, how many different ages you see out at these protests. I mean, you can, you can see, the, see the support people are bringing out, bringing out water, bringing out snacks, masks, gloves, uh, trying to take care of one another, marshal whatever resources we have and, and combine them together to take care of folk who are, who are out there putting their lives on the line. Um, and that's, that's really energizing. You know, it, it kind of makes you feel um, like maybe this time will be different. Um, but that's also kind of where the exhaustion comes in, at least from, from my standpoint, you know, as a as a black person myself, um, and you know Detroit being a being a black city, you know there's a certain level of just just being tired. You know there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into um, showing up. A lot of emotional labor goes into feeling the pain, figuring out how to turn something positive out of it, uh, making sure to take care of yourself and find space for yourself to to recharge. Um, it's a lot of work on top of just the difficulties of, of being a person, um, you know, having a family, having other loved ones you care about, trying to reach your own goals and dreams. Um, but, you know, there's always this kind of other cloud or other shadow hanging over, something, you, something else you always have to fight day in, day out. Uh, so... That's kind of how how I've really been been feeling, just just bouncing back and forth between energized and excited and uplifted, and just completely drained, and tired and cynical, um, and I'm just you know trying to be more the former than the latter, but giving myself the space to try and be both at the same time. Uh, thank you. Okay, honestly, I'm a little angry. I can't even try in front. I am really angry with everything that's going on. I'm not pissed, but I think that um, the fact that it had to get to a George Floyd and go through all the countless other people to get to here is not a good testament to the United States and how they view things. And I think that that is something that needs to be talked about. We talk about systemic racism, but what about purposeful ignorance? 
you see it in front of your face and you still don't believe it because you think that the media is trying to fool you. And I think for a lot of people still, they still believe that it, it, it's, it's not true. The, on the other side, the good thing on the other side is that people are seeing that it is true. And it has been happening for years and years and years and years. And um, I really pray for our black men and our black women and our children. Because right now the children are carrying that fight. And um, I just hope that there's no more deaths behind this. Can we just start locking people up already? No. It doesn't work like that. Breaking news tonight, a police-involved shooting in Brooklyn. The NYPD says that officers shot an armed man while responding to a call of shots fired in Crown Heights. Police say they got a shot spotter alert around 9.30 Tuesday night in the vicinity of Bergen Street and Rochester Avenue. On Tuesday night in Crown Heights, 10 NYPD officers opened fire on a man who police say had a gun. At approximately 21, 26 hours, police responded to a shot spotter activation. Units were called to the scene by an activated shot spotter device in the area of 1668 Bergen Street. This incident is not related to the ongoing protest. It's possible you've never heard of it, but ShotSpotter is the world's largest gunshot detection system. New anti-crime technology is in operation in Baltimore. Denver police are testing out their shot spotter technology. On Chicago's south side in the neighborhood of Englewood, police report a stunning 43% drop in shootings last year, largely because of these shot spotters. This call is being recorded. My name is Ralph Clark and I'm the president and CEO of ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is a for-profit company with an audio surveillance technology that detects, locates, and alerts police to outdoor gunfire. We're deployed in over 100 cities. We have two international deployments, one in Nassau, Bahamas, and then the other one in Cape Town, South Africa. The company went public in 2017. Today, they charge cities somewhere between $65,000 and $90,000 per square mile per year. The NYPD is expanding its electronic senses from eyes to ears. In March of 2015, the NYPD installed 300 audio sensors in precincts in Brooklyn and the Bronx as part of a pilot program. They were saying, hey, there's no way they can be successful here in New York because our environment is so unique, it's so different. It's so challenging. About a year later, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner Bill Bratton, who sat on the board of ShotSpotter before he was reappointed to the Office of Police Commissioner in 2013, announced the official rollout of ShotSpotter in all five boroughs. This new gunshot detection system is going to do a world of good in terms of going after the bad guys in this town, and it's going to allow us to deeply enhance the safety of our communities and the communication between police and community because when something happens, we're going to know about it instantly. Yeah, NYPD in New York City is our second largest customer around 70 square miles deployed, with our largest customer being New York City that has over 115 square miles deployed. The progress that's made by this department is because of a, an ethic, uh, an ethic that is focused on innovation, on constantly improving the work. ShotSpotter is the latest in a string of police technology embraced by the NYPD. Uh, Commissioner Bratton epitomizes this and what he did 
by developing the ComStat system is, I think, the epitome of this notion in the history of our city and the history of policing in our city. In the mid-90s, Bill Bratton and Rudy Giuliani introduced ComStat, a data-driven model of policing that's criticized for the role it's played in broken windows policing and the stop, question, and frisk harassment of hundreds of thousands of black and brown New Yorkers. But that idea of constantly innovating, constantly trying to take uh, advantage of the newest technology, looking at ways to do things better and differently than before, that pervades this agency, and it's part of why it is the finest police force in this country. While Schatzwater had buy-in from the city, New Yorkers were skeptical of the new surveillance technology, projected to cost $3 million in its first year. A gun is fired somewhere in your city. So what happens now? In the past, there was a slim chance the shooting would be reported to police at all. At least, that's how things were. ShotSpotter has changed all that. So how does it work? The company was founded 20 years ago by a Dr. Bob Schoen, who had been using math to triangulate or pinpoint the locations or epicenters of earthquakes and things like that. And he had the notion that he could apply those same principles acoustically and be able to perhaps identify and triangulate or pinpoint uh, gunfire. ShotSpotter installs a network of outdoor microphones, or in their words, acoustic acoustic sensors, sensors on lampposts, rooftops, or anywhere high up. The sensors are designed to suppress ambient noise and pick up on the impulsive pops and booms of gunfire. Once gunfire is detected, the sensors triangulate and timestamp the noise. The exact location of the detected gunshot is indicated by a dot on a map. The sound is then sent to ShotSpotter headquarters in Newark, California. Uh, Just on the other side of the bridge from Facebook. For human review. 24-7-365. These folks on a real-time basis will be listening to and looking at these pops, booms, and bangs, and they'll make the final determination whether to publish that incident or not. ShotSpotter acoustic analysts receive extensive training on reviewing and classifying gunfire by distinguishing gunshots from other impulsive sounds that are not gunshots. And so they'll knock down further uh, any potential false positives, things like, you know, jackhammers or fireworks. According to a field test done by the National Institute of Justice, ShotSpotter's detection is 80% accurate. You know, we should have no more than 10% uh, false negatives, i.e. missing gunshots. We'll tend to err on the side of send the alert out as opposed to not sending it. Um, False positives suck, but false negatives suck more than false positives. That whole process takes uh, between 30 and 45 seconds from the trigger being pulled to the alert showing up in a police department's 911 dispatch center. ShotSpotter has critics. Concerns range from officers who claim the tech is inaccurate and would rather see more cops hired, to citizens worried about cost, over-policing, and privacy violations. In 2012, a ShotSpotter mic in Massachusetts recorded part of a conversation following a shooting, sparking a debate over whether ShotSpotter audio would be admissible in court Someone happened to be standing underneath a sensor. Someone shot them, and they responded, like, literally after they shot him, like, why you do me like that, Jay, or something like that. They said, why you do me like that, X, Y, Z person. That got a lot of notoriety because that helped finger the person. The, the privacy surveillance discussions is coming up more frequently, and we've actually engaged an uh, independent body to come in and do an audit of our company from a privacy point of view. 
My name's Farhang Haideri. I'm the executive director of the Policing Project at NYU Law School. Last year, Ralph Clark reached out to the Policing Project to request a company-wide audit. Our mission is to work with communities and police to achieve more just and more effective policing. It should be noted that Ralph Clark sits on the board of the Policing Project. When we think about policing, our goal is public safety. That means more than just neighborhoods that don't have crime. It means improved relationships with police departments. It means communities having a voice in how they're policed. You know, we thought if we could help a dozen tech companies improve their practices, that we'd actually have a huge impact on the field as opposed to a dozen police departments. So far, the policing project has only worked with a few tech companies. Axon, the largest maker of body cameras in the United States, and ShotSpotter. With ShotSpotter specifically, we worked on a privacy audit. So tackling the question of what's the risk to individual personal privacy posed by ShotSpotter. Look, this is a problem with every policing technology. Companies, police departments, they're not particularly transparent about how the tech works, what their policies are on collecting data, on storing data, on using data. You know, the Fourth Amendment doesn't give you a lot of protection when you're out in public. So if private companies want to put up cameras or license plate readers to watch you in public, there's not much constitutional law around that. In July of 2019, the Policing Project released their report on ShotSpotter. The first recommendation we made was to reduce the length of time that audio is stored. They stored audio for about three days on any particular sensor. So now it's closer to about one day. We also got them to really change their internal practices with who has access to audio and what sort of audit trails are generated every time someone listens in. And the last change was to put really strong language in their policies and in their public statements that they would not allow police or DAs or anyone else to use ShotSpotter as an audio surveillance device. Another recommendation was for ShotSpotter to draft a clear outward-facing privacy policy. I think every policing uh, tech company should have totally clear policies that are written for regular folks, not written by lawyers. And then frankly, every police department should do the same thing. They should make their use policies clear, put it up for the public. You know, I'm wary about any new technology, especially when you're using technology on neighborhoods that already have borne the brunt of violence and over-policing and, you know, decades of biased police practices. I don't see ShotSpotter as, um, being too concerning on that front because these are gunshots. And in New York City, there's not a lot of good reasons for there to be gunshots. You know, it's a degree of objective evidence. And I actually think that it's really damaging to police community relations when police don't respond to gunfire. Both Ralph Clark and Farhang Haideri agree that police technology is not an answer to gun violence. It's just not about shot spotter. It's about response protocol. It's about the strategy that the police department has to better serve at-risk underserved communities and integrate our technology with other technologies and also uh, integrate it with other processes and other programs. There's decades of research out there on gun violence prevention, and the one thing that everyone agrees on is there's no one solution. 
um, it really needs to be a comprehensive strategy of regulating how people get weapons, background checks. You know, I think addressing root causes of gun violence is incredibly important. And I think one of those root causes is the relationships between police and their communities. If communities feel over-policed, policed in ways that aren't productive, then people don't like to report crimes. They don't like to serve as witnesses. And so I think no matter what the tech is or no matter what the research says, it all has to be within the context of police listening to their communities, working with their communities. happening out here very painful very stressful i don't know 
I never thought that in my entire lifetime, I will witness, this is 2020. I don't believe what I'm seeing in America. I didn't grow up in America. So most of us who only read these things in books, it's surreal to see what is going on. And uh, it's really painful because I have two young boys. So I get so scared, I get nervous, I don't know what to tell them. So what is going on in my head right now? One way that this problem can be solved is for those who are able to vote to make sure that they go out and vote come November. Because um, we can be out here shouting on the streets, but if we don't make that effort to mm -hmm. get the people in power now who are not ready to enforce the changes that we want, I don't see things changing much. So those who are able to vote should make that effort not to waste that vote come November. That's all I have to say now. And I hope everybody's okay and staying safe. COVID-19 is spreading the fastest in jails and prisons because by their very nature, you can't socially distance when you're in jail. People are held together in very close quarters. My name is Lauren Katzman. I'm a staff attorney in the criminal defense practice of the Legal Aid Society, and I work in the Brooklyn office. So Rikers Island, it's a very old, very large complex on a physical island within New York City. It is a jail, which means that everyone who's held there is either pre-trial, right, so has not been found guilty of anything and is by law presumed innocent, or they're serving a short sentence. So if someone is serving a sentence that is one year or less, then they would serve that sentence in jail. It's an awful place. There's a long history of violence and abuse by corrections officers against people who are detained on Rikers Island. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. When I've spoken with my clients who are being detained on Rikers Island, they've reported that they do not have masks. They do not have hand sanitizer. They're not being given anything to protect themselves. It's typically 50 men to a dorm. Their beds are, from what I've heard from clients, typically about two feet apart. They share one bathroom. There's typically one bar of soap in the bathroom. I heard stories of, you know, maybe one bottle of bleach being passed out among the 50 people in the dorm to be used. A lot of people were still being brought to the cafeteria to eat all together. I had clients reporting that there were people in their dorm rooms with them who were coughing, who were obviously really sick, and the clients had nowhere to go. They were stuck there. A lot of corrections officers have gotten very sick with COVID, and I know that there have been multiple corrections officers who have died. I mean, they are going home to their families, going home to their communities, and then coming back onto Rikers Island every day. And so they're getting sick, they're spreading it to people detained on Rikers, they're spreading it to their families and communities. 
it's a really dangerous situation. Legal Aid is a very large organization. We're the largest public defender in New York. We as an organization have brought a lot of lawsuits against the city and I believe against the state on behalf of our clients who are incarcerated. What's called mass writs. A writ of habeas corpus is a vehicle that we as lawyers have within the law. It's an emergency application for release of our clients. I myself brought a few writs on behalf of individual clients. Thankfully, I was able to get four clients out pretty quickly. I have some coworkers who have brought numerous writs and have been doing really, truly amazing work and getting people out. You know, if you have a client who is over 50 and has an underlying health condition, you certainly have a better chance of getting a judge and a DA to agree to the client's release. Even for people who are there because they have committed crimes. And even if those crimes they've committed are violent crimes, they are still people with families and friends and loved ones. They have not been sentenced to death. They don't deserve to get sick. They don't deserve to die. And the city's not protecting them. A lot of what we were doing was trying to convince the DAs to consent to our client's release because the reality is, is if the DA is on board with your client getting released, you have a much better chance of the judge agreeing. I think the Brooklyn DA has been better than in other boroughs. I know that in Brooklyn we've had more success with our writs and that's wonderful. I think that they haven't acted fast enough. I know when the pandemic first hit and when it became clear that it was hitting Rikers Island really hard, the Brooklyn DA and the mayor came out saying that they were going to release people in mass and instead it was really just a trickle. And I felt like it was on each individual lawyer to fight really hard to get our individual clients out. And I was happy to fight, my coworkers were happy to fight, but it, that's not how it should be in this situation. You know, some lawyers who, for whatever reason, aren't able to bring mass writs, right? Like there are some lawyers who were sick from COVID. There are lawyers who have multiple children who are caring for sick family members. So to leave it on the heads of individual lawyers, I feel like is unfair. In addition to this being a criminal justice disaster, continuing to detain people on Rikers Island during this pandemic is a public health crisis. And I will also say, not just continuing to detain, but the police are continuing to arrest people as we know, prosecutors are continuing to prosecute people, and judges are continuing to set bail. So it's not just about getting the people who are already on Rikers Island off, it's about stopping the increase right? And, and stopping new people from being incarcerated. If anyone listening has a family member or a friend or, you know, other loved one who is incarcerated, there's so much incredible work being done right now to get people out. This doesn't just apply to people who are over 50 and people who have serious health risks. We are trying to get everyone out because as we all know, it's not just older people, it's not just people with underlying health conditions who are getting very sick from COVID and who are dying from COVID. Even if pre-COVID, you really thought there was no way to get your loved one out, you would be surprised. Like, there are bail funds posting bail. There are writs being brought, creative negotiating happening with DAs. People are getting really creative and bold and we are getting people out, not fast enough, 
but we will continue fighting. But yeah, it's been a pretty crazy few days. Yeah. I just, it's like, I can't believe all this on top of the COVID, like what, yeah, what next? There was like a two minute video, you know, from Barclays from Friday with like Billy clubs flying left and right. And that was something I never thought I'd see. Each week we take you into our daily team meeting like, to give you an idea of how things are done. This week, instead, we're taking a moment of silence.
am um, just um, so uh, upset. Well, not, I shouldn't say upset. I'm just so <clears throat> centered on this situation with the protesters. I definitely feel so much a part of what they're doing. Uh, I can remember being in all the marches and things. Uh, actually, decades ago, <laughs> I was going back to Martin Luther King and my husband and I going to the uh, the um, what was that? The I don't remember. I called it Mud City because I remember you were up in like up to your boots in uh, in mud when we went down for the marches in Washington, you know. But uh, I think that this time is extremely important, uh, and that the change. I mean, right behind COVID, this on top of it has impacted the environment. And again, black people more than any, you know, and it is just an incredible uh, uh, period where we're, we really should use this time to make the demands that have been over 400 years uh, in the making, you know? Systematic racism is something that is very well documented in this society. It is very well documented from the time of the, uh, our coming here and being brought here forcefully as slaves. It's documented the lynchings of our black men. The black men in our world are the most uh, admired and the most threatening people on the earth. If racism is applied systematically all, across all the major societal compartments from education to economics, everything. And now I think is a time after all the, um, the burnt buildings, after all of the, uh, the protests, I think now is the time is really ripe for making these things to institutionalize some programs, many programs that will uh, take away the bite of the racist, that will take away their opportunity. Once we have more transparency, it will not happen because those policemen, they don't want to be charged, but they did wrong. And there's no other way to put it. It is wrong to kill black men. And they have been doing it for decades and decades and decades. We have to protest in every way we can. I mean, I know the vote is very important. And I think that the young people today will express that vote. Everyone is commenting that it was not just blacks out there protesting, it was multicolored. The young people today are seeing the disgrace and they are not acknowledging uh, uh, the, the treatment of people. And I think that is good. And I do see this as a bit different from those that we've seen along the way. And many of them I've seen and been a part of. All those people out there in protection, but they didn't have to the hostel. So the COVID ain't doing nothing now. We got a will, we got we got a will, we got to go with the will. Because mm. there's a will, the youths make a way, and we got to go with them now because it took coming 400 years or how many years for right. everything to happen. And if these young people daring Daring the policemen and daring to go out, then we have to, to back them to the end. And I prepare to back them to the end.
Weekend weather with Griffin. Weekend weather with Griffin. Hey everyone, it's junior meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high, 80. Low, 68. It will be rainy. Saturday, high, 85. Low, 63. It will be partly cloudy. Sunday, high, 76. Low, 62. It will be partly cloudy. Since I was born with white skin, that has given me privilege. Instead of reading a fun fact this week, I am going to be silent and honor black lives. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, Taylor Cook, Susie Kim, Scott Campbell, Patricia, Florence, Kinsasha, and Colette. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. We're out in the streets, but we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while you're there, follow at BrickBrooklyn for updates on the arts, music, and cultural programming we're presenting on Brick at Home. And if you want to brush up on your presenting skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.
Dennis Bolchin. Dennis Bolchin. Akai Gurley. Akai 